Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally. And tonight, Dr. Chris Stroud. This is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Tonight, our guests will be none other than ourselves. Yes, you're stuck with us. And we thought we would do something appropriate to the season. And for much of the country, the season involves colder weather, except for those of you known otherwise as snowbirds who travel south to avoid that colder weather. But there are certain medical diseases, conditions associated with this time of year, and we thought we would cover them. And to start with that, we're going to start with Mr. or Dr. Sad himself. No, actually, he's not really sad. He's probably pretty (laughs) upbeat. So, uh, sad seasonal affective disorder is a problem, isn't it, Chris? Well, in other words, it's a thing. It's a thing. <laughs> it, I mean, it is a thing. It's not you're not imagining it. If in these winter months you're struggling, but we often talk about the winter blues versus an actual condition called sad or seasonal affective. Is, disorder. is it the same as depression? Well, sad is a form of depression, and to to strict you know strictly speaking, to have the diagnosis. You need to have all the symptoms of major depression, but they need to exist seasonally. That's why it's called seasonal affective disorder. It's usually the winter, but it can actually be the summer as well. That's a minority of people. But usually it's the summer. So, you know, the typical – Excuse me. Winter. (laughs) It's the typical depression symptoms. So feeling depressed all day, low energy, I'm not interested in anything – I feel sluggish, agitated. You know, I'm, I'm describing teenagers here almost. <laughs> um, difficulty concentrating. Uh, and then there's frequent death of uh, three thoughts of death and suicide. Hopefully wow. I'm not describing teenagers there. No. Uh, but then in addition, winter sad is low energy, what we call hypersomnia. I just want to sleep all, all the, the time. time. That is a teenage thing. Yes. Overeating, uh, gaining too much weight, craving carbohydrates, hibernating in your den for the winter. It can really be a struggle for a lot of people. So it's a it's a form, it's a special variety, you might say, of major depression. What seems to bring it on? Well, you know, there's a lot of theories. Most people seem to think it's related to the light and the length of days that can really mess some of us so up. So I wonder if uh, right after we turn our clocks back and it gets dark earlier in the evening, if, I wonder if that's a trigger time. Well, you know, one of the treatments for SAD or seasonal affective disorder is light box therapy. Strangely enough, actually, they have these boxes that are fancy bright lights that have the UV filtered so that it doesn't fry your corneas. Or skin. Right, or skin. (laughs) That's right. Let's not forget the skin. Um, And it actually can help with seasonal affective disorder. Some of the other things that have been shown to be uh, helpful, interestingly, we've talked about it a lot, and it's controversial, vitamin D may be related to to SAD. There's not a lot of good objective data, but a lot of people recommend increasing vitamin D as a method to help with SAD. So is this something people can diagnose themselves? Well, you know, it's probably more common that their spouses and those with whom they live (laughs) are going to diagnose this. But, But yes, I mean, if you're feeling depression and the classic depression symptoms, and it's worse as the winter, uh, comes about, then you may be struggling with seasonal affective disorder. Chris, so, what, what should people do if they think they have SAD? Well, they should talk to a better doctor than me. I'm thinking <laughs> someone like you. <laughs> uh, they, they should talk to a primary care physician and say, you know, I really, I think I've got seasonal affective disorder. And bright physicians like you will walk them through things like light box therapy and vitamin D and sometimes antidepressant medications, therapy, and other tricks. I had one guy the other day really want a doctor's note to go to Florida. (laughs) Um, I I don't think the pharmacies will help with that, but he thought it would help with his wife. So we we tried it. I'll let you know how it goes. I'm not sure the insurance companies would recognize that. That's right. Maybe HSA? I don't know. Now, you know, there is a thing called winter blues, and we all get that a little bit. We're we're cranky, we're grumpy because it's dark when we go to work, it's dark when we go home, yes. it's cold, there's not anything green in sight besides the wilted lettuce at Kroger. <laughs> um, that's just being winter blues and grumpy. Seasonal affective disorder is depression, uh, and we should, we, should make, uh, we should make note of that. And if, if you feel like you're struggling from SAD, you need to get some help. See Dr. Mullally or someone like him and, and get some help. 
And one thing that I think is really important to point out is some people think that you can treat these by going to tanning beds. Right. Tanning beds put out ultraviolet light. Ultraviolet light has nothing to do with seasonal affective disorder. It's visible light. So you can buy on, on the internet those very mm. bright light boxes, which are just visible like, like Chris said. Uh, and you can try those easily. It's a certain amount of time each day just while you're sitting doing something else, being in the presence of it. I, I remember reading once it might have something to do with um, interacting with the pineal gland, which kind of is in the dead center of your head. Right. And, you know, the very important hormone melatonin yes. is affected by the absence of light. It's also – and serotonin is affected by vitamin D. So all of these things uh, – all of these things go together. But like with so many challenges in medicine, why would that affect one person and not affect the person right next to them? And we y- just don't know. It, one of the things that I see a lot is there's a lot of people – who maybe have a genetic predisposition Mm. to depression or anxiety, or maybe they've struggled with symptoms in the past. Mm. If you can see this coming or that's something you know about yourself, it's wise, I think, to get ahead of it. How often in your primary care practice do you see people that you think are struggling with SAD? You know, I I would say often, Mm. tell you the truth. I mean, you brought up a very good point at the beginning about meeting the official criteria, but the the gist of it I see quite a lot with either people I, I see a lot of people who have occasional depressive symptoms or anxiety and it's it's just kind of the way they're wired, you know, not to not to normalize it, but it is a common problem. Do do people come to you and say, I think I have seasonal affective disorder or are they just depressed and it seems to happen in the winter and they haven't connected those dots? I, I'd say the the people with experience recognize it early on. Ah. But so many people don't think of themselves as being depressed. They just mm. think it's weird that they've got a bad attitude and they're sleeping a lot more, they're gaining weight. And those are really symptoms of depression where that, a lot of times, that's what our conversations focus on is saying, you know, this this might not be your thyroid. This uh, might be depression. You know, it's interesting. It's about four to five times more common in women than in men. And it's this is one of the unusual things that's more common in young people instead of us old guys. Wow. Uh, that young people are much more likely to get SAD than the elderly population. Well, and I, I think a regimen has something to do with it. And if, if there's something I could tip my hat to the older generation about, <laughs> it would be about, in general, having a better daily regimen. Uh, where I And I would say even even before you necessarily consult a doctor, try this at home. Set an alarm clock for yourself every morning, even if you don't have to be up early, and exercise for 30 minutes a day. I think that will get you a long way down the road of preventing and even treating seasonal affective disorder if you feel like you're having symptoms. And I remember seeing a picture uh, when I was reading about the northernmost town in the world, Long Year Bin, um, way up in this northern archipelago north of Norway, like 80 degrees or 70-something degrees north latitude. Anyway, there, there's their elementary school every day for like an hour. They have the kids, you know, stripped down into their PE, physical education uh, uniform, standing in front of these bright lights with these <laughs> goggles on their eyes. Wow. So because they go for all oh, four and a half months without a sunrise. It's Isn't interesting. It is much more common the further away from the equator you get, either north or south. Right. Uh, it's about nine times more common in Connecticut than it is in South Florida. Man. Oh, I believe that. Yeah. Well, let's turn to what we think most about in the winter with problems, and that's the type of patients who are in your waiting room in December, January, and February, Andrew. What do they have? Infections, right? Infections are super-duper common in the winter. Now, why are infections more common in the winter than the summer? Well, they they like the cold weather, and, you know... They meaning the infections. The infections, yeah. Not the patients. Unlike (laughs) kind of what maybe Grandma told you, if you go outside in the cold, you'll get sick. That's not exactly how it works, but it'd be easy to understand why people recognize that. Uh, The way I like to explain explain it is think of putting your food in the refrigerator to keep it good and to preserve it. Viruses and infections in general don't like heat. When we're trying to sanitize something, we heat it up. Uh, If we're trying to preserve something, we put it in the fridge. And so especially outside, when the temperatures get cold, especially below zero, Viruses that would be dead in a few hours during the summer last for days and weeks on door handles, shopping carts, little kids everywhere. My house for sure. So now (laughs) my grandfather, who I thought was an authority on all things life, uh, was convinced that it was bathing. 
that bathing caused illness. Um, <laughs> caused and, illness. And therefore, he rarely partook in that activity. I wonder if you had some nicknames for, for Grandpa. I don't well, know. people didn't come around him very often, so they probably didn't infect him because they wouldn't get close to him. Yeah, actually, that's so a, it works a strategy for him, there. Huh? Yeah, it's like garlic necklaces. Nobody yeah. comes around <laughs> That's wow. really funny. But they are much more common physiologically, the biology. They are. The and, and you see that play out in your daily life. And, and we see it in the practice for sure with more folks sick with transient infections. Mm. Now, what's the most damaging thing one can do? Uh, or maybe I should say it in the positive. What's the best thing one can do to just avoid an infection, whether it's a flu or a cold or anything like that? I, I would say the number one thing that you can do is wash your hands frequently uh. and, of course, moisturize right after. Right, Tom? Uh, Maybe. <laughs> I, I, I know for myself, at least, I end up washing my hands, obviously, in between patients. But by the end of the day, my hands are getting really dry. But right. washing your hands is the number one thing because you're usually going to get sick from touching a virus and then touching yourself, either eating food, rubbing your nose or eyes. Right. That's yeah, and at work, I tend to use the um, alcohol hand sanitizers because they've been actually demonstrated to irritate your hands less than the frequent soap and water. Oh, now, really? Isn't it amazing? I would say maybe the last, what, 10 years, definitely the last seven years, the culture and medicine has changed in hospital and office settings that Everyone is using hand sanitizer now. We have it on the sides of the yes. walls before every patient yes. door. But, Tom, you and I are old enough to remember when no one would have done that. No. Maybe we would have washed our hands, but hand sanitizer really it didn't wasn't even ex- a thing. Yeah, it didn't exist. But now it's commonplace, part of the culture. And that it's interesting to learn that it works so well for viruses. I know the one thing that you need hand washing for is C. diff. But that shouldn't increase in the winter, I hope. I don't know. No. Clostridium difficile, a nasty thing that can get in your intestine. Hey, before we take our first break, we have, like all other shows, a trivia question. And this one's short and sweet and relevant to the season, and it is, how much do suicides increase over baseline or average levels during the cold weather holidays of Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's? That's why people say this cold is killing me. So, how much do suicides increase over baseline, 10%, 25%, 100% on the cold weather holidays, the days themselves of Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's? You're going to have to hang around till the end of the show for the answer, but we'll be right back with more Dr. Doctor here from the studios of Redeemer Radio. And we're back with more on winter medical problems here on Dr. Doctor. We were just getting into the winter infections with uh, Andrew. So, Andrew, what's the number one infection you see in the winter in your office? Hmm, that's a good question. I guess if I could say viruses in general, upper respiratory infections. And and the reason I, I paint with a wide brush there is because a lot of times we don't dig deeper than saying it's a virus or what a lot of people would describe as the common cold Really, that's made up of hundreds, if not thousands, of different viral strains, and that's why you can get sick multiple times during the winter because you're you're getting different ones. But even though we can kind of differentiate these with testing, the testing's expensive and it doesn't really change the recommendations. So a lot of times we don't test. So how can you tell if it's a virus versus a bacteria? That's a good question. A lot of times, you know, going back to the basics, history and physical exam. So things that are viral look different um, to somebody who sees a lot of sick people than things that are bacterial. And general things would be the length of illness. You know, most viruses wrap it up by one to two weeks. If things are going on past that and not clearly improving, more likely that's bacterial. Uh, More likely bacterial infections are one isolated area instead of multiple areas. Mm. I've got uh, people come in frequently with a cough, runny nose, pink eyes, red ears, and a rash. Bacteria, or uh, virus. Or virus, precisely, because yeah. it's <laughs> the viral The viral proteins are going throughout your body and causing symptoms everywhere. If someone's got a bacterial ear infection, much more likely you're going to have one ear that's infected, no cough, no runny nose. The other ear a lot of times looks great. It's a great now, pearl. Along those lines... Uh, for listeners, 
it's so common for people to say, oh, I think I have the flu, to which I often say, if you think you have it, you don't have it. Because <laughs> uh, there's no question when you have influenza. Yeah, you know. But, but maybe you could do a, side, a quick side-by-side yes. of what is the flu versus just your run-of-the-mill viral illness. Right. You know, the flu, one of the reasons it's kind of even got its own branding is because it's much more severe than your average virus. Influenza types A and B are seasonal viruses that go around, and many people get them. Fewer if you get the vaccine, but still some. And the main thing that you're looking for is severity of the viral symptoms. And one of the things that I can usually find that differentiates it is uh, body aches. Mm -hmm. A lot of colds, you may get some body aches, but that's not something to write home about. When you have influenza, you feel like you got hit by a truck. You know, I always tell patients that I had influenza in 1996. I still remember because I was in bed for two weeks. Wow. Yeah. And so when patients say, I think I had the flu this weekend, I want to say, <laughs> no, no. If your body wasn't hurting so badly that you thought you were going to die and you were praying, sweet Jesus, just take me now, yeah. <laughs> it probably wasn't the flu. Yeah, it was probably one of the other viruses. Yeah. And, I, and I think that's one of the reasons that influenza causes so much confusion mm-hmm. that people a lot of times attribute other viral infections as being the flu. They say, well, that wasn't too bad. But then on the other side of things, you know, my poor kids, hopefully they'll thank me someday, but I, I get them exposed to everything because I bring it home. <laughs> so, they, But your immunity must be outstanding, Andrew. You're, you know, I think mine is, but my kids are growing. <laughs> yeah, yours must rival school teachers. <laughs> yeah, so you should get some of your immune globulin, purify it, and give it to your kids. Well, the, the best thing I can do right now is... is get them the flu shot really we at the you know when i first finished training especially with the flu shot the efficacy is not where the other shots are it's more about 50 50 in in an average year and so for a long time i was kind of ambivalent about the flu shot until one year my kids got flu a in december Mm -hmm. and flu b in january back to back and then we got a letter from the school saying you're going to have to go to court because your kids are truant and trust me i sent them they sent them home i was trying to get them to go to school (laughs) they wouldn't keep them you You know know. we we talked about this last year and at the end of the flu season march april we'll probably get a chance to talk about it again but last year in our home state of indiana uh there were several hundred senior citizens die of flu oh yeah and we talked about it with a guest on the show that in all likelihood the majority of those elderly people infected were probably infected by a grandchild yeah who was probably not Not vaccinated yeah and in, in my own area in pregnancy Pregnant women who get the flu are much more likely to get hospitalized than non-pregnant adults. So can you imagine something as so-called simple as the flu ending up putting you in the hospital for a week when it could have been avoided? That's so tragic. It's it's can be frustrating, and I, I'm very sympathetic to the people who have legitimate concerns about vaccines, and, and you know, a lot of it, I think, can be related to the, the aborted stem cells that are used for some vaccines, sure. but not the flu shot. Not the flu shot. So sure. there's some, some confusion there. But gee whiz, especially if, if you could have helped protect someone, you know, someone in your family or a loved one, I, I think it does highlight the, the importance and solidarity to people who, who wow. need the extra protection. You read my mind. I was just thinking about that principle. I mean, it's really not so much about you as it is the people around you that you might infect. Yeah. Uh, you know, in a medical office, a small building like the three of us, a flu could completely wipe it out. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure they would miss me and Tom if we closed down, <laughs> but they would miss you, Andrew. <laughs> if you closed down, people would miss you. Man, well, I don't know about that, but I, I do see, I see a lot of viruses and influenza. You know, this year so far, it has not hit in force, and so I anticipate that it's still coming. But it will be here before you know it because we see it every year. So wash your hands, get a flu shot. What else can we do? You know, one of the things that I always like to try and talk to folks about is when to present for medical care. Mm. Because that's a a common question I get at 2 a.m. from a new parent. And uh, the answer is if it looks bad and if we don't know what it is. And so... So define bad. Bad, right. It, It depends on your sample size. Right. Yes. And so with without a lot of experience, everything can look bad or depending on people you talk to, nothing can look bad. Yes. And so it's very difficult. But I mean, the the thing that you want to look for primarily, especially for children, you want to look for difficulty breathing, even more than noisy breathing. Children that look like they maybe just finished running around outside where they're uncomfortable and they're short of breath. Uh, Fevers can be a good 
arrow to point us in the direction, but a fever alone doesn't necessarily mean it's something bad. And what bad. do you call a fever? You know, officially, a fever is 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, my goodness. So. Everybody in their sister and brother are going to come in. <laughs> right. And so, but even if you have a fever, a lot of times when folks call in, we'll encourage them if things sound stable to keep an eye on it for a day or two. You know, a lot of times people ask me, how, how high does a fever have to get before it's bad? And, and the answer really in my, in my mind would be if something's 104 degrees, yes. you should get checked out. And a lot of times it'll just be a virus. Yes. But until we know it's a virus, we don't know it's something else. You know, it's interesting talking about fevers in the surgery world, which is where Tom and I live. You know, most of my patients, their children see you, Andrew. And so uh, <laughs> they're, they're in tune to 100.4 right. as a fever, whereas I'm telling them 101.4 after surgery is a fever. So it's very confusing for patients and parents, especially when they're both. Um, to figure out what a fever is and what it what it isn't, and that I think that's one thing that as physicians we're always thinking about is the clinical context. You know, yeah. a kid who's running around and happy and they don't have medical problems with a one hundred point five fever, probably okay to watch. You know, a post op patient sometimes you expect fevers if they're not up walking around sure. or with medicines and whatnot, and so it depends a lot on the context. Okay, yeah. Andrew. So you earlier mentioned that viruses like the cold, they don't like heat, and that's one reason our body heats up is to try to kill the viruses. Right. So in other words, are we kind of defeating what our body's trying to do when we take medications to reduce our fevers? That is an awesome question. And there's a lot of people who feel that way. I, I would describe that as an evolutionary theory that we have, that fevers are mounted to kill viruses. Because they have done some studies that I've, I've been exposed to where people are treated with fever reducers and it doesn't shorten the, l the length of illness or lengthen it or compared lengthen. to no treatment. Because if that if that were correct, if, if we went to Scottsdale in the summer, no one would ever have a virus, right? It's 115 right. in the shade. <laughs> right, you should be safe. So no, no virus could live, but <laughs> yeah. yet reality, I've never been to Scottsdale in the summer, but I'm sure there, I'm <laughs> sure there are you. sniffles <laughs> and, and allergies and bronchitis and everything else there. Yeah, well, and, and we run into it as kind of a problem sometimes where folks say, you know, the fever helps kill the virus, so I want my child to continue their fever to get better sooner. And to, to some people who, who that, that logic appeals to, I appreciate what they're getting at, but the trouble is, is when the child feels ill, a lot of times that means they can't take adequate nutrition or hydration, and then if they get dehydrated, you have to go to the hospital. Whereas if we treat the fever and we can keep them well hydrated, you can avoid all the blood work, IVs, hospital bills, oh, et cetera. So there's no proven benefit to letting the fever be. Correct. We, we think evolutionary, evolutionarily it may have had a role, but really that's a theory, and the studies have not shown that it helps compared to treating with Tylenol or ibuprofen. Besides upper respiratory infections, are there any other common ones you see in the winter? You know, I'd say bacterial as well and most often secondary to a virus. So the viruses- How does that work? Are, yeah, viruses are so much more common. So, I mean, most of us, I would say, will get a viral infection once or a few times over the winter. That'd be normal. Um, people who don't have a full robust 18-year-old immune system are more likely to get sick in general. And so when they're already down, the bacteria kick you while you're down. And so if you've already got post-nasal drip and a runny nose and you've been laid up, if you're somebody who's prone to bacterial sinusitis or if you're somebody with asthma and you can't clear your secretions or somebody with COPD, more likely you're going to get a bacterial infection because your body's been trying to fight off the viral one. And that's the one you need the antibiotics for, isn't it? Precisely. But it's tricky. You know, treating, treating viral infections with antibiotics will look successful. It, they will. Because they were going to get point. better anyway. And that's that. <laughs> we have so many people who say, you know, I just want to nip it in the bud that started this morning. Right. And last time, I didn't get better till I got a pack or what have you. Uh -huh. And so there's always that kind of negotiation and education because as, as docs, we're getting more and more attuned to the problems that antibiotics cause. Right. And so we want to make sure we do no harm above all else. Yes. And uh, if, if people can go without antibiotics, it really is better, but you don't need to be a hero. And so there's a time. How do you know when the transformation has occurred from just a viral infection to also a bacterial infection? Yeah, it, it depends a lot on the history. So one of the big things we look at is how long a person's been sick 
and if they're improving or worsening. So if someone's been sick for two and a half weeks and their condition is deteriorating, that would suggest a transition to bacterial infection. Um, additionally, sometimes physical exam findings, like when you listen to a person's lungs, if you hear normal, 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 and in one spot we hear bad sounds like ronchi, that would be more likely to be a pneumonia. Viruses, the whole lung sound bad. Okay. Bacteria, usually one part. So. Now, speaking of Latin, this bugs me. Uh, <laughs> at mass, if you're sick, you shouldn't take the wine. Yeah. Uh, because the people behind you don't want your viruses. Right. And we'll delve into a little theology here. You, you have just as participated, <laughs> your participation level is just as good yeah. if you only receive one of the two species. Correct. You do not have to have either one, and neither is superior over the other. Correct. So, listeners, if you are your darling little ones, <laughs> have snotty noses and coughs, <laughs> please have them pass up the chalice yeah. and take only uh, the, the host. <laughs> and on that <laughs> excellent practical note, we will take a break here at the midpoint of this episode of Dr. Doctor. You're back with us here from the studios of Redeemer Radio listening to a special episode. Every episode is special. <laughs> but this episode is particularly special because we have all three co-hosts here talking about uh, our versions of winter illness and seasonal issues, you might say. And so we've talked about all the important things. Now we're going to move on to the dermatology thing. Well put. Well put, Chris. <laughs> yeah. So, Tom, we all know that there are some skin problems uh, in the winter. What are some of the most common? Well, the most common one would be what people call either winter itch or dry skin or, or dry skin eczema. Now, I feel like when I get out of the shower in January, I wish that I could just dive into a vat of lotion and roll around for a while. A am I the only human that feels that way? That's pretty common. And in fact, you're alluding to some of the causes of this. I mean, the, the, the problem here is low humidity. And if the humidity is low and you don't do certain things, you're going to be scratching and itching until springtime, hmm. until the humidity comes up again. And, and the goal humidity is like get at least between you know, 35, 40 percent. If you can get there in your homes, you're going to be fine. So the main problem with this is homes without central uh, humidification oh. through, through the heat. And so, you know. If you want to check it, you can go buy a hygrometer. That's what they call the thing that measures the humidity. Nice. And if your humidity is low, you can do what my parents did. When I grew up, of course, we had those radiators, which were metal things filled with hot water that sat in the ends of each room. Mm -hmm. And in the winter to study in upper, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, I would take a blanket, put it over a radiator, sit on the floor with my back against the radiator to to warm up. I mean, that was... That was winter for me, several months of doing that to stay warm, but it also dried out the air. So what my mom would do and my dad would get a huge pot of water and put it on all the radiators in the house. It would slowly release moisture into the air, or you could oh. even put it on the stove and put it at a low boil or just below a boil to put moisture into the air if you don't have central humidification. Or now you can buy the little room humidifiers. Right. You know, it's funny. I spent more than a decade in southwest Georgia, and the idea that someone would need to add humidity <laughs> yeah. is so foreign to me. They just need a pipeline. Right, until we, moved, yeah, until we moved to the Midwest. And then, the you know, whether it's your furniture cracking because it's too dry in the winter or your skin cracking, you right. know, too much dryness is a bad thing. And uh, – what are things that contribute to this problem? Well, showers and baths that are too long or too hot. So moisture can be put into the skin from the outside. It's, it's wonderful. But if you're in the moisture too long, over five to 10 minutes, you damage this top layer of skin called the stratum corneum. That's the layer that holds the moisture in. And once you damage that, you're going to lose more moisture than you put in with the shower See, this or the goes, bath. This goes back to my granddad. See, he knew. He didn't know the word stratum corneum, but he knew too much bathing. <laughs> yes. Too much bathing is a bad thing. Why does the, our skin itch when it's dry? What's going on there? Oh, that can be a number of different things. There are itch receptors in the top layer of skin, the epidermis, and the middle layer of skin, the dermis, that respond to different kinds of stimuli. Mm. You know, many people think that all itch is due to histamine because we hear of antihistamines. Mm. Well, one thing you should realize is the only kind of itch that antihistamines help is that due to hives. So if it's urticaria or hives, antihistamines will help. Any other kind of itch, 
They're a waste of time either topically or orally. It can be the size and shape of fibers. So for some people, the very size of a wool fiber is what causes the itch. Mm. You know, it's like 0.12 or 0.14 microns will bother some people, but not others. And there's different kinds of wool that have smaller, like the merino wool. That's a little bit smaller. It's softer, and it doesn't bother people who are bothered by the most common types of wool. Wow. So uh, other things that do it, soap. Okay, what areas of your body need soap? Really, it's only the hairy and oily areas under the arms, in the groin, and maybe the hands and feet because they get dirty. But a lot of people think, oh, I have to use soap on my face every day. Mm -hmm. That's going to dry it out and make it uncomfortable. It's actually pretty uncommon that you need to use soap on your face unless, you know, you're wearing makeup and you need it to, to get that off or you're just really grimy from a particularly dirty job. So uh, let's get back to my vat of lotion. Oh, yeah. You know, why, does, why does lotioning dry skin feel so relieving? Well, you know, one of the terms for those lotions is an emollient. And the word emollient literally means to soften. So it makes the skin feel softer and healthier. But what most of these do is they do two things. They seal moisture in that you got from the bath or the shower. And they actually themselves add moisture into the skin. Seal it and add it and prevent it from evaporating. So the ones that are the best at sealing in and preventing evaporations are your petroleum jelly. We often call it Vaseline. That's actually just a brand of petroleum jelly. And as what's described to me in residency, petroleum jelly is just what's at the bottom of a vat of crude oil, if you let it settle, <laughs> is the jelly. It's a longer chain hydrocarbons that have a higher density and therefore they settle to the bottom of the vat. But what we sell in the store is actually much better than that. <laughs> <laughs> but that is quite an image that you've conjured. Yes, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm good with those images, well, how, so I hear. How, how would uh, petroleum jelly compare to other the over-the-counter lotions? And one of the things that I, I see a lot of folks wanting to use is alternative products, such as like olive oil or coconut oil, things of that nature. Is there a big advantage of one over the other or different times you might use them? Well, you know, there are different thicknesses, uh, different densities of moisturizer. So an ointment, like pure petroleum jelly, would be the thickest. And then you go down, you know, oils are less dense. Baby oil, really baby oil is a mixture of mineral oil and all these perfumes. So what you really want is the baby oil without the perfumes. Plain mineral oil put in a bathtub is a great moisturizer. Mm. And if you're not allergic to the coconut oil or the olive oil on your skin, that's just fine as a moisturizer too. I mean, something that we used to recommend a lot when I was in Colorado, you know, and doing my training, bag balm, you know, mm. you know, use on cow udder or udder balm. That's great stuff, too, because it's mostly an ointment with some cream. So then you get mixtures of creams and ointments, often called um, you know, emollient creams. Uh, then you just get the cream. So an ointment has no water. A cream has a little bit of water. A lotion has a lot of water into oh. it. So the more water they have and the thinner they are, the less they're going to uh, add moisture or hold moisture into the skin. So sometimes those driest people, they need, you know, the, th the, the thickest you can use. And so if your barrier of your skin has been damaged because of chronic low humidity, it's dry and cracking, one of my favorite treatments that I was taught and that is a lifesaver is what we call the two pajama treatment. Oh, yes. You've told me about this before and I've started recommending it to people. Oh, it, it's so simple and so darn effective. You can do it with or without uh, an anti-itch medicine like... Uh, like a corticosteroid, a cortisone cream that you can get with prescription. Uh, but simply, if you have really dry, uh, say it's just arms and legs, so you get cotton long johns and you get a long sleeve cotton shirt and you take a shower or bath at night, then you slather on a thick moisturizer, petroleum jelly, aquaphor healing ointment, and the oil like you know, olive oil is fine. Mineral oil is good, tried and tested. You slather it all over. Then you take the long johns that are cotton, dunk them in warm water, wring them out, put them on. Then you take, if it's only your arms, you just take the arms of the long sleeve cotton shirt, dunk it in warm water, wring it out, put it on. And then put a, a, you know, a pair of sweat, sweatpants, sweatshirt on over it that's loose and baggy. You can either sleep in that overnight or if you want to wear it during the day. Most people use it and they sleep. After just a couple nights of doing this, you will notice that your skin is already feeling better. And then you don't have to do that at night anymore and just put on a good moisturizer within four minutes after getting out of the bath or shower. 
well, your your skin is better, but of course now you're three nights of not sleeping a wink because you're covered in wet pajamas. But but the but, skin but, part is great. But, but you you wring it out, <laughs> and, and it's it's amazing. Putting that moisture on your skin is actually incredibly soothing, soothing. Huh. for the itch itself. Wow. Yeah, it sounds kind of gunky, but when you have been scratching all day and going out of your mind, it, it actually does feel much better than what you've been going through. Wow. Now, Andrew, you see a lot of kids in your office. Do you see increased kids' skin things uh, in the winter months as well? Oh, yeah. And, and especially with kids, you know, again, it goes back to the sample size. You've only been dealing with the kid for a couple of years. So, I mean, it's this is still a new thing. A couple of seasons. A couple yeah. of seasons, maybe. <laughs> you know, and things that worked three months ago might not work now. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with just the dryness. And I love that, that method that Tom describes because so often I, I find folks reaching for just kind of a basic lotion over the counter. They said, you know, we've been doing this twice a day, like you said, and it's not getting better. But that's a lot of water, isn't it? It's a lotion? lot of water, and they're just putting it on dry skin. Mm. You got to crank up the power, right? right. You need something You got to get them under, under water first. For instance, if people have really dry skin eczema on their hands, soak the hands in warm water for about five minutes, slather them up, and then you can buy white cotton gloves mm. at drugstores. Dunk those in water, put them on, and then put another pair of gloves on that. And you wear that for an hour or two during the day or at night when you're sleeping again. That's going to help the hands. So, so can the, you s- the drier the skin, the thicker the uh, the treatment needs to be, you might say. You're exactly right. Oilier and thicker. Yeah, you got it. Wow, that's fascinating. It's funny. My family, we try to take a winter vacation the first week of January to mm. somewhere warm every year. And it's amazing at the end of that week how much better your skin feels. Yes. Oh, wow. It just looks better. It feels better. It it feels moist and healthy. Uh, and it's not the sun. It's not the, no. the tanning properties. It's the humidity if you it's, go somewhere warm. It's definitely the humidity. So if you see the Stroud smiling more than everybody else in January, that's a secret. <laughs> We've gone on our annual winter outage. That yeah. That is wonderful. Well, Chris... One of the topics that's near and dear to your heart, and I'm curious to find out why, is not just winter blues, but some people are affected uh, during holiday times with uh, kind of low thoughts for various reasons. It's not uncommon at all to encounter it, and I think everybody considers it, but a lot of our listeners I know can identify with the fact that the holidays, starting with Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, often do a great job uh, of marking something very, very painful. That's often the loss of a spouse. Or in my specialty, it's the loss of a child or maybe the loss of an early pregnancy. And it's the first Christmas without their spouse or the first Christmas since they lost their last child that they were pregnant with. Um, And I think it's tough. We talked about this on another show earlier about Mother's Day. You know, that can be really tough. Mother's Day is not a happy time oh, sure. for mothers who are struggling with infertility or are struggling with a current pregnancy loss. Do you see that in your elderly population, Andrew, people who've maybe lost a spouse? I, I do. And, and, you know, to some extent, everyone's affected by loss in their life, you know, and to different degrees. But the holidays just put a point on it. I mean, the, the holidays do such a good job bringing people together often. But all the more it, it shows in, in contrast when someone is absent. And I think there's so much pressure that, you know, this is supposed to be the happy times that if you are struggling with this, it, it hurts all the more, I think. And if you, if you look around and you're not the hallmark moment that's portrayed, uh, I'm sh- it can be very lonely and very isolating if you've lost your spouse, if you're not surrounded by the greatest friends in the world. And yet every image you see is people that are like that. That can be really tough. But I see it a lot in my practice with pregnancy loss and infertility. And then also patients who are old enough that they've lost a parent. And there'll be that first Christmas, or maybe it's the 15th Christmas, and it always reminds them of when their parent died. And uh, I don't think there's an answer for that other than all of us to be sympathetic and empathetic to that when we're around people that Christmas and Thanksgiving, it's not always an easy time for everyone. Uh, and we should remember that uh, we just don't know what cross somebody's bearing that's sitting next to us. And on that note, we'll take a break before the final segment on this episode of Dr. Doctor. 
You're back from the studios of Redeemer Radio with Dr. Doctor and my co-host, Dr. Andrew Mullally and Dr. Tom McGovern. And it is time for this special uh, edition's trivia question. The question was, how much do suicides increase over baseline during the cold weather holidays of Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's? Tom, I know people are dying to know the answer. You know, we hear that that's a thing. The problem is, it's not a thing. They actually don't increase on the holidays. Although one study in Japan did show that they increased after various holidays. But in the United States, looking at a 35-year period, there was no increase before, during, or after holidays. So, and they think that that is due to the fact that most people are around other people and therefore receiving emotional support. And a little bit of protection, maybe. Yes. Mm. Now, if they were isolated, I don't have any data on that, Perhaps it would be higher, but right now there's no evidence that that's the case. They may feel worse in general, but uh, maybe they don't because they do have that emotional support. So that apparently is a myth. I wonder if there's a bit of an observational bias. By that I mean if there is a suicide death during the holidays, we all tend to be more in tune and notice perhaps right. and pay closer attention. Whereas if there was one on August 15th, you're not going to think every August 15th, oh, this is a day for suicides. Exactly. Well, I'm interested about uh, homicides, actually, because <laughs> I feel that way sometimes during the holidays. And I think what we're all getting around is the stress level of the holidays. Yes. And that, that's palpable. So I wonder if there's any data on homicides. I did not look that up. We're That's have a to great that question. Up. So I think I'll assign that to you, Andrew. Tune in same time next year for that <laughs> trivia question. Time. One of my favorite lines from cinema is from that great cinematic feature, Christmas Vacation, uh, <laughs> where the mother is explaining to her daughter, she said, honey, I'm paraphrasing, it's Christmas we all suffer. <laughs> <laughs> but it can be a tough time, right? We bring people together and houses who don't necessarily share houses yeah. except at Christmas and probably Probably not every Christmas, probably just one or two Christmas, you know, out of a decade. And it, it can be a stressful time. So what do we do when we're under stress? We eat more. So do we actually tend to gain weight as a culture during uh, the Christmas, Thanksgiving, New Year time frame? Well, lo and behold, the New England Journal of Medicine looked into it. And in uh, September of 2016, published an article. So they looked at the six-week stretch from Thanksgiving to New Year's. And they looked at uh, Americans, but they also looked at Germans. And guess what? Both of them gain weight, but the Germans about <laughs> twice as much as the Americans. <laughs> oh, really? And here we live in northeast Indiana where there's a lot of people of German ancestry. So we may have an especially apt pocket of people who could do that. But do, what Do the Germans ever lose it is the question. Ah, well, th- this is what they point out, that the average American's weight increases 0.4% over Christmas and 0.2% over Thanksgiving. So if you add it up, it's about a pound a person doesn't sound like much. But to Andrew's point, it doesn't sound like much if you lose it right after the holiday. That's the problem. It adds up every year in general. People aren't losing that weight. It just sits there and stays till the next holiday season, and you just keep adding on to it like silt at the bottom of a river. (laughs) So my advice, my advice from earlier, the best way not to gain five pounds over Christmas, lose 10 before Christmas comes, and you won't gain five. You know, in in that uh, journal article, they recommend, you know, keep up your normal exercise regimen during the holidays and, and, you know, try not to do more nocturnal eating. Now, nocturnal eating does not, contrary to the myth, make you more likely to gain weight. Well, no, that's a big myth bust right there. It's just that you're eating more times a day. That's the problem. It's extra eating. It's extra eating. That's the problem. So maybe you can go back to this show that I have been living since April, and that is the intermittent fasting show that we did. (laughs) So I've stopped eating breakfast since then. I've lost like 14 pounds, and I feel better than I ever have since college when I also didn't eat breakfast. Mm. So it's uh, my energy level's better in the morning. That's just me. But the thing is, then I can eat in the evening when I like to eat, even if I'm stress eating. It's not overeating in the end. So that's one way that I found. There are ways, you know, anybody can find if you want to enjoy those evening nocturnal, whatever it is we eat at Christmas. <laughs> I think there's something to be said, what you kind of put it out, Tom, that it's an extra meal. 
because I'm I'm thinking about days if I'm at home all day. Yes, you know, you're oh. gonna eat a lot more. At least oh. I do. I Especially eat a lot more there. than if I'm working all day. You know, because there's not time for it normally. Right. Yeah. We're we're drowning in calories. We don't eat because we're hungry. We eat because sometimes we're bored and because yes, they're available. Yes. Um, but you know, we we go to Christmas parties and we go to all, and to New Year's parties and then there's a Super Bowl party. We're gonna we're gonna graze at those parties. Eat before you go so you're not starving. Um, or work out really hard and skip a meal before you go. That's my <laughs> that's modus operandi. <laughs> or you could do like Tom and you know run to the to the party wherever it is. Leave the car at home and jog to the party. That, that, that's a thought. Man. So what else do we have? You know, one of the other things that um, I look at, you know, with the skin is you can get frostbite. Uh, you know, frostbite is a lot like sunburn. The stages of it are very similar in that you've got the first degree, second degree, and third degree. First degree is just redness. Second degree is blistering. Third degree is full thickness, loss of something. And frostbite occurs, of course, you know, at the ends of our hands and feet, fingers, toes, uh, nose, and uh, ears. So the key thing is to be you know, bundled up. But something that a lot of people don't realize is there's another condition called perneal or chillblains. Ah, uh, yes. So the key difference between frostbite and chillblains is that frostbite occurs in temperatures 28 degrees Fahrenheit or less. Mm. Chillblains and perneal only occurs at temperatures above freezing. Ah, that's so, a good, good pearl there. So it's usually damp, non-freezing temperatures. Think England. Uh. Okay, that's how I picture England. And it's an inflammation of the skin. And it's typically, you know, it can be swelling, you know, edema, redness, but you can also get bumps or even blisters. And an episode of it takes usually one to three weeks to clear up, unlike frostbite. And by the way, another myth is that in frostbite, you want to treat it by heating up slowly. Actually, if you heat frostbite slowly, you damage the tissue. Mm. You want to heat it rapidly by putting your hand, your foot into water. That's about like a whirlpool, 104 degrees. So it heats it up rapidly. This is the opposite. When we use liquid nitrogen to treat different skin diseases, right. what do we want? Fast freeze, slow thaw, because the slow thaw time is what damages the tissue. You're trying to damage the tissue. You're trying to damage the tissue. Yeah. So think about it. With frostbite, if you do the slow thaw, you're going to damage the you're tissue. You're going to damage. So that's why you want to do now, practical question. You know, we've seen these pictures of Everest climbers with yes. with black digits or a black nose or the that would tissues. Be third degree frostbite. Yeah, it's actually necrosed or, or the tissue has the died. The full thickness has died. And it, how did our ancestors survive without our fancy Gore-Tex and battery heated socks and and wonderful outdoor you know, uh, weather gear? How did our ancestors survive and not lose all of their digits and extremities? That is a great question. I mean, were they just tougher than us? I mean, there was probably, you know, like the body shunts heat away from the digits from the skin when you get cold, Mm. you know, to preserve the, you know, the brain and the internal organs. Uh, They probably used animal skins. I mean, because it worked for the animals, right? So (laughs) it probably worked for them too. I know I was reading an article about how football players stay warm and prevent frostbite when they're playing football. And they put Vaseline on before they play. Yeah. It keeps the heat in. So maybe our ancestors did that. I don't know. Animal fat. (laughs) Yeah. You know, seal blubber. Yeah, possibly. Bear bear fat. Who knows? It's remarkable. Try it at home. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can see what some little kid going somewhere. Uh, But uh, with Pernio and Chillblains, again, you just want to keep the area covered and dry. So perneal and chillblains doesn't really happen in uh, dry environments. It's just the moist uh, above freezing. Andrew, what kind of last tips do you have for people not getting infections in the winter or getting less? Wash your hands, wash them again, and then moisturize. Very good. That was easy. I didn't even get a chance to write that down, but that was good. (laughs) And when in doubt, call. I mean, it's to some extent, it's common. 
even bordering on normal to be sick over the winter. If it seems worse than other ones, by all means get checked out because there are some that are very serious. But in general, most, I mean, I'm picking a number out of my head here, 75% are going to be common colds. Mm. So t- take that statistic with a grain of salt. And if it seems worse than, than three quarters of them, get it oh, checked here, out. Oh, here's a question. When somebody has the symptoms of a cold, are they generally infectious to other people? Oh. That's a great question. And it depends on each virus. Some things, I'd say for most of the winter viruses, when you're sick, you're most infectious, most contagious. Uh, and when you're not sick, you're, you're less so. Should you stay home from work or school with a cold? You know, it depends. It really depends. And, I, and the way I like to do it is I like to tell folks when they're contagious and have them consult their school or employer. Most schools say 24 hours with no fever, and then you can come back. But that clearly doesn't catch everybody, but that's kind of their rule of thumb. So I'd say if you're sick, you're probably contagious. Whether you go to work or school or not, that's a tough one. It really is because you don't want to spread it, but also that's where you got it from. So, mm. Thank you for listening to this special three-person co-hosting extravaganza on Dr. Doctor. We are the official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend. Invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. Be sure to rate and review our show to help new listeners find us. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor, where we will be discussing the science of compassionate care in medicine. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.